Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and cheers of the Christmas season to you all. Come, come in. Come and be comforted by the warmth, the companionship, the spiced cider and stolen, and a tale or two to terrify. Tonight, well, you'll see. First, unwrap, find a comfortable spot and a chum to snuggle and snuffle with. But before we begin, I would like to remind you again of David Bradshaw's Kickstarter effort. David is a Nova Scotia-based singer, songwriter, all-round good fellow. David has been a long-time supporter of the Starship with his Tal Seti music segment and other efforts. If you stopped by last week's Tales to Terrify, and if you did not, go to the archives now. If you stopped by, you know that David is wrapping up work on his second CD, Songs from Another County. The disc features 11 original songs and some exceptional guest artists playing along with David— Carmel McColl, Willie Stratton, Wanda Rose Milne, David McCormick, and Grant Mitchell. The original goal of a thousand Canadian dollars to support mastering and reproduction of the CD has been met. However, David has set a few stretch goals to help sweeten the pot for us here in the District of Wonders in particular. At fifteen hundred dollars, David will write and record a new original song, especially for the Starship Sofa. When he hits $1,750, David will write and record a new original song for us, here in the nook at Tales to Terrify. And at $2,000, David will write and record a new original song for the entire District of Wonders network. To quote David, From the start, this project has been all about friends and neighbors coming together to make the music happen. Whether you are around the corner or across the world, 
I want to thank you for considering pitching in to help the final stages of production for songs from the former county. The music wouldn't be there without you. As mentioned last week, the you in that last sentence is us. So I hope you'll stop by. Donors receive added benefits and privileges appurtenant unto their donorship. So stop by the Kickstarter site, the location of which appears on our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com and on our Facebook page. Make a donation to help the District of Wonders be celebrated in song as well as story. And best wishes, David. And Merry Christmas to both you and Robin. Poetry of the Season Last Christmas, our homepage art featured a classic image of a nasty piece of holiday joy, the Krampus. We all know the Krampus, yes, yes, that goatish beastie that punishes particularly bad children each Christmas season by coming round, bagging them, and carrying them off to his lair. This year, we've got another image for the Krampus, and with it, a poem by our resident poet of the strange and amusingly awful Mr. Bob Cabine, and it is called, well, I'll let our permanent Bob Cabine voice, Bob Newfeld, tell us. Bob and Bob, you're on. Krampus comes to town. Tonight's the night that Santa comes. The kids jump up and down, so unaware tonight's the night that Krampus comes to town. And why should they, the innocent, the guileless, and the pure, have knowledge of the horror that the wicked will endure? Some say he is a fairy tale, a myth from way back when. Some say he's the Lord of Yule, or Santa's evil twin. He doesn't need you to believe, or care how you might feel. If you are on his list of names, you'll find out if he's real. If you've been disobedient and really rowdy, too, I wouldn't worry very much. Krampus won't bother you. He's hunting for the evil ones who prey upon the weak, the ones who thrive on misery and have a vicious streak. The brutal ones, the heartless ones who relish pain and fear, the bullies and their hangers-on who hit and laugh and jeer. If you have tortured helpless kids for how they looked or talked, Krampus will surely come for you. Tonight you will be stalked. If you're afraid, lock all the doors and close the windows tight. But he's coming, coming, coming for you this very night. It takes a beast to know a beast— and you he knows too well. Run if you must, hide if you can. He'll track you by your smell. When Krampus finally sniffs you out, and yes, he surely will, he'll stuff you in his bully bag, a hunter with his kill. He'll drag you screaming to his lair, across the cold wet roofs. You'll hear the weathered shingles crack beneath his cloven hooves. His fatted breath and musky fur will sear your tender nose. Just where it is he's taking you, nobody really knows. 
and if you've made an outcast wish that they were never born, Krampus will take his time with you and gut you with a horn. He'll thrash you with his thorny sticks and flog you with his chain. No Christmas gift for you this year. Your present is your pain. You terrorize the neighborhood, the playground at your school, but you'll babble like a baby when blood begins to pool. And you'll crawl, just like an infant, through blood and poop and pee, while Krampus points and laughs at you with ridicule and glee. He'll tango to the music of your futile screams and cries, and lap up all the salty tears that rain down from your eyes. Your parents and the sheriff will search on and on and on. By morning he'll be done with you, and Krampus will be gone. Some day, somewhere, someone will find your brittle bully bones in a basement or a boiler room with other cruel unknowns. But Krampus has a long, long list and might not get to you. You'll have a year to think about the things you say and do. Compassion is not frail or weak. Its power is profound. You'll need that strength next Christmas Eve when Krampus comes around. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, Bob. Robert Payne Cabine is a poet of the ironic, the wry, and of the sly places where horror gives way to smiles. He is a dreamer and reporter of happy little nightmares. We shiver, we smile at the dark, he writes. And Bob is a writer and an artist. He did the Krampus image we see on our homepage. And he lives in California, of course, He's a screenwriter who wrote the animated feature Heavy Metal 2000 for Columbia TriStar Sony Pictures. Some of his other film credits are Walking with Buddha and A Monkey's Tale. He also does some scripting for Disney. So thanks again for this week's art and poem, Bob. Bob Newfeld, who read Krampus Comes to Town, is the voice of choice for Bob Cabine's dark and fictive dreaming. In addition to having recorded all what is it, four of Mr. Cabine's efforts for us here in the Nook in recent months, it was Bob Newfeld who entertained us for five-plus hours with his rendition of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. To my tastes, Bob Newfeld is one of the premier readers on LibriVox, which is where I first heard him. I always jump at a chance to have a listen to whatever he does over there. You can hear more from him there and over on the Crime City Central neighborhood in the District of Wonders. Thanks again, Bob and Bob. Before we move on to this week's story, I want to read something to you. It's something I wrote. I'm from a place called Reading, Pennsylvania. That's spelled R-E-A-D-I-N-G. That's like the Reading Railroad in Monopoly. No, that's not the Reading Railroad. Reading now is a town of about 75,000 souls. When I was a tot, Reading had in excess of 110 or more thousand people. 
I wrote the piece I'm going to read to you for Berks County Magazine several years ago. It's appropriate, I think, for here, for now. It's called What Santa Saw Departing. Maybe it was on Halloween, I don't know. But Jack Gounder, WEEU's permanent on-air presence, announced himself one day as your all-American boo. Well, I laughed. At six or seven, much is easily funny. That was funny. Jack Gounder was Redding's all-American boy. You see, everyone knew that. Jack Gounder's voice was all depth and vibration, what every daddy's voice should be, what mine should be. But there was a kid thing about him, too. Even when announcing ruins somewhere in the world, you listened. Then you heard the little back-in-the-throat melody that lets you know finally and always, no matter what happened where, we were all right. There in Reading, we'd always be all right. So, if you can hold that voice in your head, remember it, then know this. Jack Gounder was Santa Claus, the real and official one. The guy on the throne in Pomeroy's six-floor toyland. Him, you could see, you could talk to him, you could sit on his lap. He was real, too. But the radio guy, the radio guy had your letter. Your letter. Years beyond the time in my life that Santa Claus believed in me, I discovered that Jack Gounder and Santa were one. I was a high school freshman, I believe, hanging at WEEU, emptying trash, making coffee, trying to be useful, staring at the glass booths where fame was made. Maybe might have been something said, maybe a laugh at the right moment, but there, one day, there was Santa, just behind me, in the hall. Okay. Christmases, Santa lived in two places, on the radio and on the sixth floor of Pomeroy's department store. Other Santas? Sure. Bosco's bell-ringing Santas on the corners, Santas even at Berks County Trust Company Bank. These were helpers. Santa, at Pomeroy's, was the for-real one. He had to be. All of Reading took part in his arrival. He slid royally up Penn Street on a two-story Kaufman's furniture float that was preceded by every fire truck, every politician, every out-of-work soldier, marching girl, and slide trombone in the county. At Pomeroy's, Santa climbed a six-story ladder to Toyland. This on Thanksgiving's Friday. Santa on the float, Santa climbing the ladder, might seem skinny. He might seem as skinny as Charlie Hoke. You don't know Charlie Hoke. I did. He was skinny. The climbing Santa was that skinny. But in his empire, six floors above Penn Street, in the wide, high-pillared heaven of toys and light, the go-fish fish pond and carols and clanging registers and shuffling pneumatic tubes, in there, Santa was fat. Santa was old. His white beard and muzzy met his skin in a damp green line. Maybe that was the way of beards. I knew no others in those reading years of my life. Santa was a magic old man who smelled not like Pop-Pop or Uncle Abner or any other old man of my familiarity. No, no. But he smelled of strange things, a little of beer, of smoke, 
clothes hamper maybe, but mostly of things then, without name. And he smelled of mothballs. He smelled of them, too. When I sat on his lap, Santa creaked like old furniture, crackled like straw in a sack. He was scratchy everywhere. His voice came, not from his mouth, but out of the wrapping of the man from behind his face. And his face smelled of licorice sensen and teeth. Whispering my Christmas once in the noise and press of Pomeroy's Toyland, though, was, was not enough, of course not. Every year before Santa's yearly miracle of toys and chimneys, I had to make a letter which my mother and I would mail, would mail together, solemnly, at the postbox in the corner, stamped, addressed, official, Santa Claus, the toy shop, the North Pole, the world, yeah. Each night on WEEU then, Santa read to us. He spoke our names. He announced our wishes to the whole of the world. One year, my name, my wishes, dashed from the big wooden cabinet in the living room. The radio's quivering green tuning eye danced to my name, chilling me as it rolled from Santa's chest and into the air, forever traveling. And still it goes into the dark and cold of space, my name, my once that year, flying now beyond Pegasus. On Christmas Eve, then, at home in early darkness, Daddy and I would climb the creaking stairs to the attic. Two floors below us, the radio turned, echo loud, and Santa's voice and ho-ho-hos followed up the steps, down the dark side hallway and up the dusty attic stairs to us, my father and I, at the landing at the top of the house. Ho-ho-ho! In the unheated dark above, we listened. Listening, we watched and we waited, watched the pagoda's lights. Wait, okay. Let me go back. Back to summer. There is Redding's Mountain, Mount Penn, green, sun-gold and lush, and at age seven my life's permanent horizon, the edge beyond which was nothing, was the world. On the shoulder of the ridge... Rising where the mountain dropped into City Park and to East Reading was a pagoda, a five-roofed, seven-storied piece of Asia in our Pennsylvania hills. A family outing on Sundays, a motor ride up Durier Drive, and there was the pagoda. Its observation deck yielded a view of the city, the valley of the Schuylkill, the hills, and far away, far away was the world. Between where I stood and the world was my house. I could see it. From the top of the pagoda, I saw my house. All Redding melted, flowed away from this spot. The 18th floor of the courthouse, the tallest building in Berks County, lay far below. Planes crawled the distant runway at Spots Field, inch by inch, and silently barely made the sky below us. Nearer, the rail yard shuffled freight, coal, oil. Each car nudged, released, sent rolling by, softly coughing engines below us. Tiny autos crawled in humming indifference down below. The rumors about the pagoda came later. Later, when I was old enough, oh, ten or twelve, to have older friends. When we were old enough to climb the mountain by ourselves in summers, that was when the stories came, came whispered, sneering from Johnny Keegan. 
pagoda. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, a house. Bunch of rich guys built it for a private, you know, you know what? What? You know. No. No, what? What? Oh, cripes, you know. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> you got that right. And then later the city took it over and turned it into a, you know, a, a what? Cripes, a tourist trap, you know. Look. We looked. The first floor was a gift shop. Ice cream sandwiches, cold drinks, the nose-chilling, dry-ice steam pouring from the freezer, the waxed lacquer scent of wooden plaques with Pennsylvania Dutch wisdom printed on them. We grow too soon old and too late, schmart. A pungency of coffee, of burnt toast and grilling dogs, squeaking racks of postcards, bumblebees and horseflies humming outside or in, flickering on the orange fly paper uncurling from the ceiling. On the stairway to the pagoda's observation deck were side hallways, corridors I had never considered when there with my parents. Down these dark halls, nailed shut doors. But with Keegan, Davy Brown, Terry Hebhart, Cliffy Mahler, these shadow places were suddenly fraught. Keegan chinned up easily to peer in the transoms, the doors sealed forever from the casually curious. Keegan could hang on fingertips for hours. Oh, man, you ought to see this. Oh, man. Keegan hung, drinking in the old sins that perfumed up to his nose from behind those sealed doors. Davy Brown, a Seventh-day Adventist and not interested in such things, watched the stairs while I stood shaking on Hebhart's shoulders, Hebhart waiting his turn below my feet. Cliffy Mahler, too short to peer even on shoulders, buttressed me from behind. But if he couldn't see, Mahler wanted details. My nose touched the old, old transom glass. Beyond my nose, each room was a ghost, a spook. Not marvelous, no, but a but a shade made of questions. In each small twilit room, a pale iron frame, the skeleton of a bed, a sink with blood-rust streaks, peeling paper, paint-like scabs, lifting from the woodwork, barely hanging on, a narrow window looking into the darkness, the darkness of dark trees. Nothing else. Now, nothing else. What had happened in that place, in the places like it along all the halls? What happened there years ago that Keegan knew and we did not? From Keegan, just a smile, his smile all muscle, sinew, and knotted jaw, and fists to enforce his view of history. Ah, what do you think? At that advanced age, ten or twelve, the big oriental bell that hung in the center of the window-surrounded room at the top of the pagoda became kind of a disappointment. First, it didn't look like a bell. Never really had. With my head inside that iron thing, I smelled breath, heat, old spiders. Whomped by me, by friends, Terry, Davy, Cliffy, with fists, flashlights, whatever was at hand, the bell didn't ring, it clunked. Keegan might snatch you bodily, head-womp you on the bell's iron side, but ring it now, ain't it, he'd say? Yes, but, well, that was not the same, no. The big bell, disappointed, it failed, always and utterly failed, to ring me quasimodo deaf. 
but Christmas. Back to Christmas. Christmas Eve and Santa. Santa left from there. From that room with that bell in the pagoda high above Reading. On my attic landing, looking across all of Reading at the Christmas-lit pagoda, and I was shivering against my father's warmth, I saw that upper room. I saw that bell in memory. From summer recollection, I constructed the Christmas scene, seen by Santa yearly. The view was built of half-belief and certain knowledge. Santa climbed the dusty stairs, walked past those dark side halls, he rose to the room at the top of the mountain above all Reading, and from there, in the night-dark room with the dead hanging bell, Santa spoke to us, to all the world on WEEU, on Christmas Eve. He told every good boy and girl in Radio Land to go to bed. He'd soon be on his way. So now, he said, goodbye to all you boys and girls. All you mommies and daddies, goodbye for now, and Merry Christmas, all! And then, then the lights went out. The pagoda, brightly Christmas since the day after Thanksgiving, went suddenly dark. A moment of silence like that. Then the place was lit again, and Santa was gone was flying for the world from that place, the top room of the pagoda, over Reading, over our house, yours too, if you were around then. Years later, Santa's belief in me flying out beyond Pegasus, as I said, years later at WEU while emptying trash and waiting for fame, I turned to face him, Santa. There was this little guy... Five, five tops, maybe. No no bigger than I was at age ten or twelve, straining up on Hebhart's shaking shoulders. Jack Gounder was a little guy. Thin hair, slicked back, shoulders like a coat hanger. Here he was, a shy smile saying hello with the every-daddy voice. Jack Gounder, our all-American boo. Santa Claus. In that handshake moment, a couple of bubbles burst somewhere in the universe. The world has never been the same, not since. I never wondered, age seven or eight, why Santa left from Reading. Not then, I didn't. Reading was the center of the world. It must be because Santa left from there. From that room above, he flew over, over all, over me, below. The mountain... It all comes back to the mountain. Reading is a town surrounded by, created by the mountains in the valley of the Schuylkill. And proud I am, I still can spell that name. What Santa saw departing that Christmas was me. Of course it was. Me at the window I'd always watched from. Me atop the house I'd always lived in. Surrounded by the family that would ever be. Me at the edge of the dark that always awaits. That's what Santa saw, departing. Now, for some storytelling. Tonight I'm pleased to have one of M. R. James' ghost stories. To my taste, his ghost tales are the best in the genre. 
Cribbing from Wikipedia, it is said that James redefined the ghost story for the new century, the new century being the 20th century. He abandoned many of the formal Gothic clichés of his predecessors and used more realistic contemporary settings. In addition, James' protagonists and plots tend to reflect his own antiquarian interest. He is therefore known as the originator of the antiquarian ghost story. Well, James was an antiquary, an archaeologist, a medieval and biblical scholar. In fact, the success of his ghost stories was founded on his reputation as an antiquarian. But enough. Let me rattle on and you'll hear more than you are like to know. Here, without further ado, is A View from a Hill by M.R. James. How pleasant it can be alone in a first-class railway carriage on the first day of a holiday that is to be fairly long to dawdle through a bit of English country that is unfamiliar, stopping at every station. You have a map open on your knee and you pick out the villages that lie to right and left by their church towers. You marvel at the complete stillness that attends your stoppage at the stations, broken only by a footstep crunching the gravel. Yet, perhaps that is best experienced after sundown, and the traveller I have in mind was making his leisurely progress on a sunny afternoon in the later half of June. He was in the depths of the country. I need not particularise further than to say that if you divided the map of England into four quarters, he would have been found in the south-western of them. He was a man of academic pursuits, and his term was just over. He was on his way to meet a new friend, older than himself. The two of them had met first on an official inquiry in town, had found that they had many tastes and habits in common, liked each other, and the result was an invitation from Squire Richards to Mr Fanshawe, which was now taking effect. The journey ended about five o'clock. Fanshawe was told by a cheerful country porter that the car from the hall had been up to the station and left a message that something had to be fetched from half a mile further on, and would the gentleman please to wait a few minutes till it came back. But I see, continued the porter, as you got your by-style, and very like you'd be it, find it pleasanter to ride up to the hall yourself, straight up the road here, and then first turn to the left. It ain't above two mile, and I'll see you as your things is put in the car, for you'll excuse me mentioning it, only I thought it were a nice evening for a ride. Yes, sir, very seasonable weather for the hate-makers. Let me see, I have your bike ticket. Thank you, sir, much obliged. You can't miss your road, etc., etc. The two miles to the hall were just what he needed, after the day in the train, to dispel somnolence and impart a wish for tea. The hall, when sighted, also promised just what was needed in the way of a quiet resting place after days of sitting on committees and college meetings. It was neither excitingly old nor depressingly new. Plastered walls, sash windows, old trees, smooth lawns were the features which Fanshawe noticed as he came up the drive. Squire Richards, a burly man of sixty-odd, was awaiting him in the porch with evident pleasure. "'Tea first, he said. Or would you like a longer drink? No? All right. Tea's ready in the garden. Come along. They'll put your machine away. I always have tea under the lime tree by the stream on a day like this.' Nor could you ask for a better place. Midsummer afternoon, shade and scent of a vast lime tree 
cool, swirling water within five yards. It was long before either of them suggested a move. But about six, Mr Richards sat up, knocked out his pipe and said, Look here, it's cool enough now to think of a stroll, if you're inclined. All right then, what I suggest is that we walk up to the park and get on the hillside, where we can look over the country. We'll have a map and I'll show you where things are, and you can go off on your machine, or we can take the car, according as you want, exercise or not. If you're ready, we can start now, and we'll be back before eight, taking it very easy. I'm ready. I should like my stick, though. And have you got any field glasses? I lent mine to a man a week ago, and he's gone off Lord knows where and taken them with him. Mr Richards pondered. Yes, he said, I have, but they're not things I use myself, and I don't know whether the ones I have will suit you. They're old-fashioned and about twice as heavy as they make them now. You're welcome to have them, but I won't carry them. By the way, what do you want to drink after dinner? Protestations that everything would do were overruled and a satisfactory settlement was reached on the way to the front hall, where Mr Fanshawe found his stick, and Mr Richards, after thoughtful pinching of his lower lip, resorted to a drawer in the hall table, extracted a key, crossed to a cupboard in the panelling, opened it, took a box from the shelf and put it on the table. The glasses are in there, he said, and there's some dodge of opening it, but I've forgotten what it is. You try. Mr Fanshawe accordingly tried. There was no keyhole, and the box was solid heavy and smooth. It seemed obvious that some part of it would have to be pressed before anything could happen. The corners, said he to himself, are the likely places, and infernally sharp corners they are too, he added, as he put his thumb on his mouth after exerting force on a lower corner. What's the matter? said the squire. Why, your disgusting Borgia box has scratched me, drat it, said Fanshawe. The squire chuckled unfeelingly. Well, you've got it open anyway, he said. So I have. Well, I don't begrudge a drop of blood in a good cause, and here are the glasses. They are pretty heavy, as you said, but I think I'm equal to carrying them. Ready? said the squire. Come on, then. We go out by the garden. So they did, and passed out into the park, which sloped decidedly upwards to the hill, which, as Fanshawe had seen from the train, dominated the country. It was a spur of a larger range that lay behind. On the way, the squire, who was great on earthworks, pointed out various spots where he detected or imagined traces of war ditches and the like. And here, he said, stopping on a more or less level plot with a ring of large trees, is Baxter's Roman villa. Baxter, said Mr Fanshawe. Ah, I forgot you don't know about him. He was the old chap I got those glasses from. I believe he made them. He was an old watchmaker down in the village, a great antiquary. My father gave him leave to grub about where he liked, and when he made a find he used to lend him a man or two to help him with the digging. He got a surprising lot of things together, and when he died, I dare say it's ten or fifteen years ago, I bought the whole lot and gave them to the town museum. We'll run in one of these days and look over them. Glasses came to me with the rest, but of course I kept them. If you look at them, you'll see they're more or less amateur work, the body of them. Naturally, the lenses weren't his making. Yes, I see they're just the sort of thing that a clever workman in a different line of business might turn out. But I don't see why he made them so heavy. And did Baxter actually find a Roman villa here? Mm, Yes, there's a pavement turfed over where we're standing. It was too rough and plain to be worth taking up, but of course there are drawings of it, and the small things and pottery that turned up were quite good of their kind. An ingenious chap, old Baxter. He seemed to have quite an out-of-the-way instinct for these things. 
He was invaluable to our archaeologists. He used to shut up his shop for days at a time and wander off over the district, marking down places where he scented anything on the ordnance map. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And he kept a book with fuller notes of the places. Since his death, a good many of them have been sampled and there's always been something to justify him. What a good man, said Mr. Fanshaw. Good, said the squire, pulling up brusquely. I meant useful to have about the place, said Mr. Fanshaw. Was he a villain? Mm, I don't know about that either, said the squire, but all I can say is, if he was good, he wasn't lucky. And he wasn't liked. I didn't like him, he added after a moment. Oh, said Fancho interrogatively. No, I didn't. But that's enough about Baxter. Besides, this is the stiffest bit, and I don't want to talk and walk as well. Indeed, it was hot, climbing a slippery grass slope that evening. I told you I should take you the short way, panted the squire, but I wish I hadn't. However, a bath won't do us any harm when we get back. Here we are, and there's the seat. A small clump of old Scotch firs crowned the top of the hill, and at the edge of it, commanding the cream of the view, was a wide and solid seat on which the two disposed themselves and wiped their brows and regained breath. Now then, said the squire, as soon as he was in a condition to talk connectedly, this is where your glasses come in, but you'd better take a general look around first. My word, I've never seen the view look better. Writing as I am now, with a winter wind flapping against dark windows and a rushing, tumbling sea within a hundred yards, I find it hard to summon up the feelings and words which will put my reader in possession of the June evening and the lovely English landscape of which the squire was speaking. Across a broad level plain they looked upon ranges of great hills whose uplands, some green, some furred with woods, caught the light of a sun, westering but now not yet low. And all the plain was fertile, though the river which traversed it was nowhere seen. There were copses, green wheat, hedges and pasture land. The little compact white moving cloud marked the evening train. Then the eye picked out red farms and grey houses, and nearer home scattered cottages, and then the hall nestled under the hill. The smoke of chimneys was very blue and straight. There was a smell of hay in the air, 
There were wild roses on bushes hard by. It was the acme of summer. After some minutes of silent contemplation, the squire began to point out the leading features, the hills and valleys, and told where the towns and villages lay. Now, he said, with the glasses you'll be able to pick out Fulnicker Abbey. Take a line across that big green field, then over the wood beyond it, then over the farm on the knoll. Yes, yes, said Fanshawe, I've got it. What a fine tower. You must have got the wrong direction, said the squire. There's not much of a tower about there that I remember, unless it's Oldbourne Church that you've got hold of, and if you call that a fine tower, you're easily pleased. Well, I do call it a fine tower, said Fanshawe, the glasses still at his eyes, whether it's Oldbourne or any other. And it must belong to a largest church. It looks to me like a central tower, four big pinnacles at the corners and four smaller ones between. I must certainly go over there. How far is it? Oldbourne's about nine miles or less, said the squire. It's a long time since I've been there, but I don't remember thinking much of it. Now I'll show you another thing. Fanshawe had lowered the glasses and was still gazing in the Oldbourne direction. No, he said, I can't make out anything with the naked eye. What was it you were going to show me? A good deal more to the left. It oughtn't to be difficult to find. Do you see a rather sudden knob of a hill with a thick wood on top of it? It's in a dead line with that single tree on the top of the big ridge. I do, said Fanshawe, and I believe I could tell you without much difficulty what it's called. Could you now, said the squire, say on. Why, Gallows Hill, was the answer. How did you guess that? Well, if you don't want it guessed, you shouldn't put up a dummy gibbet and a man hanging on it. What's that, said the squire abruptly. There's nothing on that hill but wood. On the contrary, said Fanshawe, there's a largest expanse of grass on the top and your dummy gibbet in the middle. And I thought there was something on it when I looked first, but I see there's nothing, or is there? I can't be sure. Nonsense, nonsense, Fanshawe. There's no such thing as a dummy gibbet or any other sort on that hill. And it's thick wood, a fairly young plantation. I was in it myself not a year ago. Hand me the glasses, though I don't suppose I can see anything. After a pause, no, I thought not. They won't show me a thing. Meanwhile, Fanshawe was scanning the hill. It might be only two or three miles away. Well, it's very odd, he said. It does look exactly like a wood without the glass. He took it again. That is one of the oddest effects. The gibbet is perfectly plain and the grass field, and there even seem to be people on it and carts, or a cart with men in it. And yet, when I take the glass away, there's nothing. It must be something in the way this afternoon light falls. I shall come up earlier in the day when the sun's full on it. Did you say you saw people and a cart on that hill? said the squire incredulously. What should they be doing there at this time of day, even if the trees have been felled? Do talk sense. Look again. Well, I certainly thought I saw them. Yes, I should say there were a few just clearing off. And now, by Jove, it does look like something hanging on the gibbet. These glasses are so beastly heavy I can't hold them steady for long. Anyhow, you can take it from me, there's no wood. And if you'll show me the road on the map, I'll go there tomorrow. The squire remained brooding for some little time. At last he rose and said, Well, I suppose that will be the best way to settle it. And now we'd better be getting back. Bath and dinner is my idea. And on the way back he was not very communicative. They returned through the garden and went into the front hall to leave sticks, etc., in their due place. And there they found the aged butler, Patton, evidently in a state of some anxiety. Big pardon, Mr. Henry, he began at once, but someone's been up to mischief here, I'm much afraid. 
He pointed to the open box which had contained the glasses. Nothing worse than that, Patton, said the squire. Mayn't I take out my own glasses and lend them to a friend, bought with my own money, you recollect, at old Baxter's sale, eh? Patton bowed, unconvinced. Oh, very well, Master Henry, as long as you know who it was. Only I thought proper to name it, for I didn't think that the box had been off this shelf since you first put it there. And if you'll excuse me after what happened... The voice was lowered, and the rest was not audible to Fanshawe. The squire replied with a few words and a gruff laugh, and called on Fanshawe to come and be shown his room. And I do not think that anything else happened that night which bears on my story, except perhaps the sensation which invaded Fanshawe in the small hours that something had been let out which ought not to have been let out. It came into his dreams. He was walking in a garden which he seemed half to know and stopped in front of a rockery made of old wrought stones, pieces of window tracery from a church and even bits of figures. One of these moved his curiosity. It seemed to be a sculptured capital with scenes carved on it. He felt he must pull it out and worked away and, with an ease that surprised him, moved the stones that obscured it aside and pulled out the block. As he did so, a tin label fell down by his feet with a little clatter. He picked it up and read on it, On no account move this stone. Yours sincerely, J. Patton. As often happens in dreams, he felt that this injunction was of extreme importance, and with an anxiety that amounted to anguish, he looked to see if the stone had really been shifted. Indeed it had. In fact, he could not see it anywhere. The removal had disclosed the mouth of a burrow, and he bent down to look into it. Something stirred in the blackness, and then, to his intense horror, a hand emerged, a clean right hand in a neat cull and coat sleeve, just in the attitude of a hand that means to shake yours. He wondered whether it would not be rude to let it alone, but as he looked at it, it began to grow hairy and dirty and thin, and also to change its pose and stretch out as if to take hold of his leg. At that, he dropped all thought of politeness, decided to run, screamed, and woke himself up. This was the dream he remembered. But it seemed to him, as again it often does, that there had been others of the same import before, but not so insistent. He lay awake for some little time, fixing the details of the last dream in his mind, and wondering in particular what the figures had been which he had seen or half seen on the carved capital. Something quite incongruous, he felt sure, but that was the most he could recall. Whether because of the dream or because it was the first day of his holiday, he did not get up very early, nor did he once plunge into the exploration of the country. He spent a morning half lazy, half instructive, in looking over the volumes of the Country Archaeological Society's transactions, in which were many contributions from Mr Baxter on finds of flint implements, Roman sites, ruins of monastic establishments, in fact, most departments of archaeology. They were written in an odd, pompous, only half-educated style. If the man had had more early schooling, thought Fanshawe, he would have been a very distinguished antiquary. Or he might have been, he thus qualified his opinion a little later, but for a certain love of opposition and controversy and, yes, a patronising tone as of one possessing superior knowledge, which left an unpleasant taste. He might have been a very respectable artist. There was an imaginary restoration and elevation of a priory church which was very well conceived. A fine pinnacled central terror was a conspicuous feature of this. It reminded Fanshawe 
of that which he had seen from the hill and which the squire had told him must be Oldbourne. But it was not Oldbourne, it was Fulnocker Priory. Oh well, he said to himself, I suppose Oldbourne Church may have been built by the Fulnocker monks and Baxter has copied Oldbourne Tower. Anything about it in the letterpress? Ah, I see it was published after his death, found among his papers. After lunch, the squire asked Fanshawe what he meant to do. Well, said Fanshawe, I think I shall go out on my bike about four, as far as Oldbourne and back by Gallows Hill. That ought to be a round of about fifteen miles, oughtn't it? About that, said the squire, and you'll pass Lambsfield and Wanstone, both of which are worth looking at. There's a little glass at Lambsfield and the stone at Wanstone. Good, said Fanshawe. I'll get some tea somewhere, and may I take the glasses? I'll strap them on my bike on the carrier. Of course, if you like, said the squire. I really ought to have some better ones. If I go into the town today, I'll see if I can pick up some. Why should you trouble to do that if you can't use them yourself, said Fanshawe. Oh, I don't know. One ought to have a decent pair, and, well, old Patton doesn't think those are fit to use. Is he a judge? He's got some tale, I don't know, something about old Baxter. I promised to let him tell me about it. It seems very much in his mind since last night. Why that? Did he have a nightmare, like me? He had something. He was looking an old man this morning, and he said he hadn't closed an eye. Well, let him save up his tale till I come back. Very well, I will if I can. Look here, are you going to be late? If you get a puncture eight miles off and have to walk home, what then? I don't trust these bicycles. I shall tell them to give us cold things to eat. I shan't mind that, whether I'm late or early, but I've got things to mend punctures with, and now I'm off. It was just as well that the squire had made that arrangement about a cold supper, Fanshawe thought, and not for the first time as he wheeled his bicycle up the drive about nine o'clock. So also the squire thought and said several times as he met him in the hall, rather pleased at the confirmation of his want of faith in bicycles than sympathetic with his hot, weary, thirsty and indeed haggard friend. In fact, the kindest thing he found to say was, You'll want a long drink tonight. Cider cup do? All right. Hear that, Patton? Cider cup? Iced? Lots of it. Then to Fanshawe. Don't be all night over your bath. By half past nine they were at dinner and Fanshawe was reporting progress, if progress it might be called. I got to Lambsfield very smoothly and saw the glass. It is very interesting stuff, but there's a lot of the lettering I couldn't read. Not with the glasses, said the squire. Those glasses of yours are no manner of use inside a church, or inside anywhere, I suppose, for that matter, but the only places I took him were the churches. Hmm, well, go on, said the squire. However, I took some sort of a photograph of the window, and I dare say an enlargement would show you what I want. Then one stone. I should think that stone was a very out-of-the-way thing, only I don't know about that class of antiquities. Has anybody opened the mound it stands on? Baxter wanted to, but the farmer wouldn't let him. Oh, well, I should think it would be worth doing. Anyhow, the next thing was Fulnicker and Oldbourne. You know... It's very odd about that tower I saw from the hill. Oldbourne Church is nothing like it, and of course there's nothing over 30 feet high at Fulnicker, though you can see it had a central tower. I didn't tell you, did I, that Baxter's fancy drawing of Fulnicker shows a tower exactly like the one I saw? So you thought, I dare say, put in the square. No, it wasn't a case of thinking. The picture actually reminded me of what I'd seen, and I made sure it was Oldbourne well before I looked at the title. Well... Baxter had a very fair idea of architecture. I dare say what's left made it easy for him to draw the right sort of tower. 
That may be it, of course, but I'm doubtful if even a professional could have got it so exactly right. There's absolutely nothing left at Fulnicker but the bases of the piers which supported it. However, that isn't the oddest thing. What about Gallows Hill? said the squire. Here, Patton, listen to this. I told you what Mr Fancho said he saw from the hill. Yes, Master Henry, you did, but I can't say I was so much surprised. Considering. All right, all right. You keep that till afterwards. We want to hear what Mr Fanshaw saw today. Go on, Fanshaw. You turned to come back by Ackford and Thorfield, I suppose. Yes, and I looked into both of the churches. Then I got to the turning which goes to the top of Gallows Hill. I saw that if I wheeled my machine over the field to the top of the hill, I could join the home road on this side. It was about half past six when I got to the top of the hill, and there was a gate on my right where it ought to be leading into the belt of plantation. You hear that, Patton? A belt, he says. So I thought it was a belt, but it wasn't. You were quite right, and I was hopelessly wrong. I cannot understand it. The whole top is planted quite thick. Well, I went on to this wood, wheeling and dragging my bike, expecting every minute to come to a clearing, and then my misfortunes began. Thorns, I suppose. First I realised that the front tyre was slack, then the back. I couldn't stop to do more than try to find the punctures and mark them. But even that was hopeless, so I ploughed on, and the further I went, the less I liked the place. Not much poaching in that cover, eh, Patton? said the squire. No, indeed, Master Henry. There's very few cares to go. No, I know, never mind that now. Go on, Fancho. I I don't blame anyone for not caring to go there. I know I had all the fancies one least likes, steps crackling over twigs behind me. "'indistinct people stepping behind trees in front of me. "'Yes, and even a hand laid on my shoulder. "'I pulled up very sharp at that and looked round, "'but there was really no branch or bush that could have done it. "'Then, when I was just about at the middle of the plot, "'I was convinced that there was someone looking down on me from above, "'and not with any pleasant intent. "'I stopped again, or at least slackened my pace to look up, "'and as I did, down I came and barked my shins abominably on... What do you think? A block of stone with a big square hole in the top of it. And within a few paces there were two others just like it. The three were set in a triangle. Now, do you make out what they were put there for? I think I can, said the squire, who was now very grave and absorbed in the story. Sit down, Patton. It was time, for the old man was supporting himself by one hand and leaning heavily on it. He dropped into a chair and said in a very tremulous voice, You didn't go between them stones, did you, sir? I did not, said Fanshawe emphatically. I dare say I was an ass, but as soon as it dawned on me where I was, I just shouldered my machine and did my best to run. It seemed to me as if I was in an unholy, evil sort of graveyard, and I was most profoundly thankful that it was one of the longest days and still sunlight. Well, I had a horrid run, even if it was only a few hundred yards. Everything caught on everything, handles and spokes and carriers and pedals, caught in them viciously, or I fancied so. I fell over at least five times. At last I saw the hedge, and I couldn't trouble to hunt for the gate. There is no gate on my side, the squire interpolated. Just as well I didn't waste time then. I dropped the machine over somehow and went into the road pretty near head first. Some branch or something got my ankle at the last moment. Anyhow, there I was, out of the wood, and seldom more thankful or more generally sore. Then came the job of mending my punctures. I had a good outfit and I'm not at all bad at the business. But this was an absolutely hopeless case. It was seven when I got out of the wood and I spent fifty minutes over one tyre. As fast as I found a hole and put on a patch and blew it up, it went flat again. So I made up my mind to walk. 
that hill isn't three miles away, is it? Not more across country, but near six by road. I thought it must be. I thought I couldn't have taken well over the hour over less than five miles, even leading a bike. Well, there's my story. Where's yours and Patton's? Mine? I've no story, said the squire. But you weren't very far out when you thought you were in a graveyard. There must be a good few of them up there. Patton, don't you think? They left them where they fell to bits, I fancy. Patton nodded, too much interested to speak. Don't, said Fanshawe. Now then, Patton, said the squire. You've heard what sort of time Mr Fanshawe's been having? What do you make of it? Anything to do with Mr Baxter? Pull yourself a glass of port and tell us. Ah, that's done me good, Master Henry, said Patton, after absorbing what was before him. If you really wish to know what were in my thoughts, my answer would be clear in the affirmative. Yes, he went on, warming to his work. I should say, as Mr Fanshawe's experience of today were very largely due to the person you named, and I think, Master Henry, as I have some title to speak, in my view of me axing been many years on speaking terms with him and swore in to be jury on the coroner's inquest near this time ten years ago, you being then, if you carry your mind back, Master Henry, travelling abroad, and no one here to represent the family. Inquest, said Fanshawe. An inquest on Mr Baxter, was there? Yes, sir, on that very person. The facts has led up to that occurrence was there. The deceased was, as you may have gathered, a very peculiar individual, as is Abbott's, in my idea at least, but all must speak as they find. He lived very much to himself, without neither chick nor child, as the saying is, and how he passed away his time was what very few could offer a guess at. He lived unknown, and few could know when Baxter ceased to be, said the squire, to his pipe. I beg pardon, Master Henry, I was just coming to that. But when I say how he passed away his time, to be sure we know how intent he was in rummaging and ransacking out all the history of the neighbourhood and the number of things he'd managed to collect together. Well, it was spoke of for miles around as Baxter's museum. And many a time when he might be in the mood and I might have an hour to spare, he showed me his pieces of pots and what not, going back by his account to the times of the ancient Romans. However, you know more about that than what I do, Master Henry. Only what I was a-going to say was this as nobody might and interesting as he might be in his talk, there was something about the man. Well, for one thing, no one ever remembered to see him in church, nor yet chapel at service time. And that made talk. A rector, he never come in the house, but once. Never asked me what the man said. That was all anybody could ever get out of him. Then how did he spend his nights, particularly about this season of the year? Time and again the labouring men would meet him coming back as they went out to the work, and he'd pass by him without a word, looking they say, is like someone straight out of the asylum. They see the whites of his eyes all round. He'd have a fish basket with him that they noticed, and he always come the same road, and the talk got to be that he'd made himself some business, and that not the best kind. Well, not so far from where you was at seven o'clock this evening, sir. Well, now, after such a night as that, Mr Baxter, he'd shut up the shop, and the old lady that did for him had orders not to come in, and knowing what she did about his language... She took care to obey them orders. But one day it so happened about three o'clock in the afternoon, the house being shut up, as I said, there come a most fearful to-do inside and smoke out of the windows and Baxter crying out seemingly in an agony. So the man has lived next door, he run round to the back premises and burst the door in and several others come too. Well, he tell me he never in all his life smelt such a fearful, well, odour as what there was in the kitchen place. It seemed as if Baxter had been boiling something in a pot and overset it on his leg. 
Then he laid on the floor trying to keep back the cries, but it was more than he could manage and when he seen the people come in, oh, he was in a nice condition. If his tongue weren't blistered worse than his leg, it weren't his fault. Well, they picked him up and got him into a chair and run for the medical man and one of them was going to pick up the pot and Baxter, he screams out to let it alone. So he did, but he couldn't see as there was anything in the pot but a few old brown bones. Then he says, Dr Lawrence will be here in a minute, Mr Baxter. He'll soon put you to rights. And then he was off again. He must be got up to his room. He couldn't have the doctor come in there and see all that mess. They must throw a cloth over it, anything, the tablecloth out of the parlour. Well, so they did. But that must have been poisonous stuff in that pot, for it was pretty near on two months before Baxter were about again. Big pardon, Master Henry. Was you going to say something? Yes, I was, said the squire. I wonder you haven't told me all this before. However, I was going to say I remember old Lawrence telling me he'd attended Baxter. He was a queer card, he said. Lawrence was up in the bedroom one day and picked up a little mask covered with black velvet and put it on for fun and went to look at himself in the glass. He hadn't time for a proper look, for old Baxter shouted out to him from the bed, Put it down, you fool! Do you want to look through a dead man's eyes? And it startled him so that he did put it down, and then he asked Baxter what he meant, and Baxter insisted on him handing it over, and said the man he bought it from was dead, or some such nonsense. But Lawrence felt, as he handed it over, that he declared he wasn't sure it was made out of the front of a skull. He bought a distilling apparatus at Baxter's sale, he told me, and he could never used it. It seemed to taint everything, however much he cleaned it. But, go on, Patton. Yes, Master Henry, I'm nearly done now, and time too, for I don't know what they'll think about me in the servants' hall. Well, this business of the scalding was some few years before Mr Baxter was took, and he got about again and went on just as he'd used. And one of the last jobs he'd done was finishing up them actual glasses what you took out last night, you see, he'd made the body of them some long time and got the pieces of glass for them. But there was something wanted to finish him. Whatever it was, I don't know. But I picked up the frame one day and I says, Mr Baxter, why don't you make a job of this? And he says, ah, when I've done that, you'll hear news, you will. There's going to be no such pair of glasses as mine when they're filled and sealed. And there he stopped. And I says, why, Mr Baxter, you talk as if there was wine bottles filled and sealed. Why? Why? Where's the necessity for that? Did I say filled and sealed, he says. Oh, well, I was suiting my conversation to my company. Well, then come round this time of year, and one fine evening I was passing his shop on my way home, and he was standing on the step, very pleased with himself, and he says, All right and tight now, my best bit of work's finished, and I'll be out with him tomorrow. What, finished them glasses, I says. Might I have a look at them? No, no, he says, I put him to bed for tonight, and when I do show him you, you'll have to pay for peeping, so I tell you. And that, gentlemen, were the last words I heard that man say. That were the 17th of June, and just a week after, there was a funny thing happened, and it was due to that as we brought in unsound mind at the inquest, for barring that, no one as new Baxter in business could anyways have laid that against him. But George Williams has lived in the next house, and do now, he was woke up that same night with a stumbling and tumbling about in Mr Baxter's premises and he got out of bed and went to the front window on the street to see if there was any rough customers about and it being a very light night he could make sure that there was not. Then he stood and listened and he heard that Mr Baxter coming down his front stair one step after another very slow and he got the idea as it was someone being pushed or pulled down and holding on to everything he could. Next thing he heard the street door come open and out come Mr Baxter into the street in his day clothes. 
at and all with his arms straight down by his sides and talking to himself and shaking his head from one side to the other and walking in that peculiar way that he appeared to be going, as it were, against his own will. George Williams put up the window and hear him say, Oh, mercy, gentlemen, and then he shut up sudden as if, he said, someone clapped his hand over his mouth and Mr Baxter threw his head back. And his hat fell off, and William see his face looking something pitiful, so as he couldn't keep from calling out to him, Why, Mr Baxter, ain't you well? And he was going to offer to fetch Dr Lawrence to him, only he heard the answer. Tis best you mind your own business. Put in your head. But whether it were Mr Baxter said it so coarse-like and faint, he never could be sure. Still, there weren't no one but him in the street, and yet Williams was that upset by the way he spoke that he shrank back from the window and went and sat on the bed, and he heard Mr Baxter's step go on and look up the road, and after a minute or more he couldn't help but look out once more and see him going along the same curious way as before. And one thing he recollected was that Mr Baxter never stopped to pick up his at when it fell off, and yet there it was on his head. Well, Master Henry, that was the last anybody see of Mr Baxter leastways for a week or more. There was a lot of people said he was called off in business or made off because he got into some scrape, but he was well known for miles round and none of the railway people nor the public house people hadn't seen him. And then Pons was looked into and nothing found, and at last one evening Fakes the keeper come down from over the hill to the village and he says he's seen the Gallows Hill planting black with birds and that they were a funny thing because he never see no sign of a creature there in his time. So they looked at each other a bit, and the first one says, I'm going to go up, and another says, So I am if you are, and half a dozen of them set out in evening time and took Dr Lawrence with them. And you know, Master Henry, there he was between them three stones with his neck broke. Useless to imagine the talk which this story set going. It is not remembered. But before Patton left them, he said to Fanshaw, Excuse me, sir, but did I understand as you took out them glasses with you today? I thought you did, and might I ask, did you make use of them at all? Yes, only to look at something in a church. Oh, indeed, you took him into the church, did you, sir? Yes, I did. It was Lambsfield Church. By the way, I left them strapped onto my bicycle, I'm afraid, in the stable yard. No matter for that, sir. I can bring him first thing tomorrow, and perhaps you'll be so good as to look at him. Accordingly, before breakfast, after a tranquil and well-earned sleep, Fanshawe took the glasses into the garden and directed them to a distant hill. He lowered them instantly and looked at top and bottom, worked the screws, tried them again and yet again, shrugged his shoulders and replaced them on the hall table. Patton, he said, they're absolutely useless. I can't see a thing. It's as if someone had stuck a black wafer over the lens. Well, my glasses, have you? said the square. Thank you, the only ones I've got. Try them yourself, said Fanshawe. I've done nothing to them. So, after breakfast, the squire took them out to the terrace and stood on the steps, after a few ineffectual attempts. Lord, how heavy they are, he said impatiently, and in the same instant dropped them onto the stones and the lens splintered and the barrel cracked. A little pool of liquid formed on the stone slab. It was inky black, and the odour that rose from it is not to be described. Filled and sealed, eh, said the squire. If I could bring myself to touch it, I dare say we should find the seal. So that's what came of his boiling and distilling, is it, old ghoul? What in the world do you mean? Don't you see, my good man? Remember what he said to the doctor about looking through dead men's eyes? Well, this was another way of it. 
but they didn't like having their bones boiled, I take it, and the end of it was they carried him off whether they would not. Well, I'll get a spade and we'll bury this thing decently. As they smoothed the turf over it, the squire, handing the spade to Patton, who had been a reverential spectator, remarked to Fanshawe, It's almost a pity you took that thing into the church. You might have seen more than you did. Baxter had them for a week, I make out, but I don't see that he did much in the time. I'm not sure, said Fanshawe. There is that picture of Fulnooker Priory Church. James is brilliant at blending commonplace events with the supernatural. He eases you simply into the chills of the tale. They slip easily behind, then around you. They bring you in, then release you, and leave you changed forever. A View from a Hill was first published in The Living Age on July 4th, 1925, and became part of James' 1925 collection, A Warning to the Curious and Other Ghost Stories. As A View from a Hill is set in the idyllic, bug-buzzing summer, you may wonder why I'm calling this a Christmas ghost story. Well, James' ghost tales are frequently called Christmas ghost stories because they were based on entertainments he'd written and told to gatherings of friends and selected students at the Christmas season. Obviously, James had a way of wearing his learning lightly. By the way, the BBC did a wonderfully atmospheric series of shows which recreates these Christmas entertainments. Christopher Lee stands in for James. I've posted the link for two of these, as well as the Beeb's adaptation of this story. A View from a Hill was read for us tonight by John Dodds. John, not surprisingly, is a Scottish writer who lives in Bulgaria. John is the author of numerous short stories, several novels. Three of his short tales have received honorable mention in the year's best fantasy and horror anthologies. The first two novels in his crime series, The Kendrick Chronicles, Bone Machines, and Kali's Kiss, are now out as audiobooks from Blackstone Audio and are narrated by British actor Robin Sachs. You may reach John at http colon slash slash bonemachines.wordpress.com. That will be on our homepage and on the Facebook page. Well, there it is, children of the night. To Celia, Mahler, and I, Offer the best of the season to you. And, by the way, this may be our last Christmas in Chicago. We're planning on making a move eastward to New England sometime in the next few months, so this may be among my last opportunities to warn you of the creatures of Chicago's side streets, the rats, coyotes, Cubs fans and to alert you to the beasts of the lake, the lake's unpredictable siege waves. Where we plan to go is a lovely small town with hills, nearby mountains, and deep forests. 
a lovely, dark, and swift-flowing river, and a waterfall that rumbles past an abandoned mill. And I'm sure there will be beasties and dangers aplenty to warn you on your home-going trips. Yes? Yeah, well, enough conjecture. If you're ready to head out into this night, with this night's dangers ahead and alongside of you, let me offer my sincere wishes that you have been good boys and girls, and that the goat-horned, hairy-thewed beastie, the Krampus, has not come to town early. That would put an end to your pleasant Christmas dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the... Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.